And, and church, I know you've been, uh, we've been walking through the book of Philippians for a long time now. We started all the way back in August, and we are now nearing the end. We are digging into chapter 4 this week, so just kind of let you know where we're going. Uh, we are going to finish out Philippians the Sunday before Easter. So Easter is coming up on the 31st of March, a little early this year. And uh, the Sunday right before that will be our final and last Sunday in the book of Philippians. So just a, a couple more weeks, and uh, then we'll have Easter, and then we're going to start a brand new series going through a, a different book of the Bible the Sunday after Easter, and I'll let you know what that is maybe next week. Yeah, let's plan on next week. I'll let you know next week. So be here next week. I'll let you know where we're going after that wood book is next. I'm really excited about uh, about that one, um, so I'm excited to share that with you guys. But uh, just so you know, we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week. So we ended uh, right in the first verse of chapter 4, so we're going to pick that up in chapter 4, verse 2, and go through verse 5. Today, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we pray for us, and we'll, we'll get going here. Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment that we have each week where we get to come and just be with you and be with your people in worship and encouragement of one another, Lord. So we thank you for this blessing that is the church and the blessing that is this particular church body. Lord, we we pray your hand of blessing over today. Jesus, would you be in everything that is happening in this room and in our kids' rooms, Lord, would you be with those workers as they pour into these children and pour the gospel into their lives, Jesus? Would you be with us in this moment as we uh, worship, as we open up your word today, Lord? Would you meet us here in your power, in your presence, Lord? Would you speak clearly through your word and, and touch our very hearts today, Lord? Would you use this as a time to mold us and shape us into the people, the believers that you would want us to be, Jesus? So we ask all of this in your powerful name. Amen. Okay, so recently, uh, my three-year-old, Myla, she's three, she just turned three at the beginning of this month. Uh, lately, she's been really enjoying playing with balloons. I don't know, maybe it was her birthday party, we had balloons in the house for that. I'm not really sure, but she'll pull a balloon out of the cabinet, and she'll bring it to me. She wants me to blow it up, and all she wants to do is just bounce it in the air and just kind of follow it wherever it goes and just try to keep it in the air as long as possible. But she's three, and she's a little clumsy. So she's having the time of her life. And meanwhile, I'm terrified as she's stumbling through the house, bouncing this balloon up in the air. She's She'll stumble, she'll fall. I mean, she's almost fallen down the stairs. She's almost like gone headfirst into the cabinet. It's like, I'm just terrified. And she's just laughing the whole time as she's running around trying to keep this balloon in the air. And it actually reminded me of Paul's letters. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but Here's why. Because at the end of Paul's letters, he just kind of bounces around from like these random little topics, one-liners, quick wisdom things that he just kind of shares. It's almost like he can sense that it's like, okay, I need to conclude this time, but I've got so much more to say. So here's just let me word vomit all over you. So he does that. And then he kind of gives some final shout outs at the end. It just He just kind of seems all over the place. So we're, we're entering in that phase of Paul's letters where we're just going to see a bunch of quick hitters, one-liners, quick little wisdom things that he has. Has. Then he'll kind of give some final personal updates in this particular letter. He'll express some gratitude to the Philippians and their care and provision of him. And then, as he always does, he'll give his final goodbyes, final shout outs that Paul always does. But he just kind of bounces all over. So that's where we, we come to in Philippians chapter 4. These next few verses that we'll walk through today and in the next couple of weeks is really just kind of, again, quick one-liners, quick wisdom hitters for us that, that seem disconnected, that seem like he's kind of bouncing 
bouncing all over the place, but it is really connected and he's really drawing conclusions on a lot of what he said in his letter. So let's go ahead and jump in. So again, Philippians chapter four, starting in verse two. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen right here, or we have Bibles at the table out in the hallway. Please grab one of those on your way out today. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take one of those. But Philippians chapter two, starting in verse, or chapter four, starting in verse two, it says this. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Okay, so we're going to stop there, and this would continue. Like we kept reading in verses 6 through through 10, really, uh, or really even 13. It's just, again, it's these, these quick little things that Paul is reminding us in the Philippians about in their relationship with Jesus. So again, it kind of even in this, these few verses, it kind of seems like he's bouncing around. I mean, he's talking to two ladies in the church, and he's telling them to agree, and then he's talking to some true partner, whoever that is, right? We don't even know. And then he says, hey, rejoice again. Hey, I know I've been saying this again, but here it is again. Rejoice, and then be gracious, and the Lord is near. It's like, okay, where, where, what, huh, Paul? Where, where are you going with this? We're kind of just all over the place here. But again, this is all building from what he's said before, right? For the last several verses, for all of chapter 3, Paul's been talking about this idea of what it means to know the Lord, right? That's his desire. That's his goal is to know the Lord as deep as possible, to have this deep, intimate, personal relationship with the Lord. And he spent all this time talking about what that looks like and how we grow and develop that and what life with Jesus looks like, right? When we look at Paul's life, he really is living to give it all to Christ, gives everything to Jesus and calls us to do the same. So here at the end of his letter, he's building off of all of that and just kind of giving us a quick peek into certain aspects of what it looks like to live for Jesus. Because if we are, this is what we're talking about, right? If we are going to live for Jesus, we're going to proclaim Christ and, and live as believers, then Jesus doesn't want just part of us. He wants all of us. He wants everything that we have to give to him and service to him and love and devotion to him. And if we're going to live that way, it is going to affect every aspect of our lives. It's going to affect our relationships. It's going to affect our attitude and mindset in life. It's going to affect how we want to demonstrate Jesus and the gospel to the world around us. It's going to affect our, our time, the things that we think about and dwell on, and our priorities in life. So that's where Paul's going in these next few verses. We're going to talk a little bit about those today. We'll talk more next week and the week after about these, again, just kind of quick little wisdom gold nuggets that Paul gives us here in this passage. So today, there, there's three aspects of living with Jesus, our life with Christ that Paul touches on, and that's where we're going today. So three things that he touches on. One, having unity with one another. Two, rejoicing always. And three, being gracious towards everyone. So if you're taking notes, that's our outline. That's where we're going today. So point number one, you can write this down. The first thing he touches on is unity with one another. Unity with one another. Look again at, at these first two verses that we looked at, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Okay, so what, what, what's going on here, right? So Paul uh, has no problem addressing sin in the church, addressing issues in the church, but he typically does not call people out by name. And here we've got Paul calling out two women by name in the Philippian church who have some sort of disagreement or issue with one another. And again, like, so just keep in mind, when, when Epaphroditus, who brings this letter back from Rome to Philippi, what is going to happen is they're going to gather the entire church together, the entire community of believers there, and read this letter out loud. So you can imagine, like, man, they're, they're hearing this, they're, yeah, amen, yeah, that's, that's good, man. Hey, read that line again from Paul, that, that was really good, I like that. And then he comes here, and he's like, hey, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree. And I mean, you can just imagine you being one of those, and like, oh, no. Okay, I mean, your, your names are called out for all of eternity in the very words of Scripture that people 2,000 years later are going to be dissecting and being like, hey, I wonder what happened to these two women. It's like, I can imagine, like, some of us are going to get to heaven and be like, hey, where's Yoda? And did, y'all, did y'all work it out? Y'all, y'all feel, like, what happened there? What's going on there? Did y'all figure things out? Y'all good now? Like, Paul just calls these two women out, and again, he doesn't typically do this. Like, you look at uh, his, his letters to the Corinthians, that church was as messed up as it gets, and he doesn't really call people out by name. And here, he's calling these two women out by name. Now, look, we don't know too much about these women, but we do know that they were considered leaders in this church. I mean, Paul groups them together with his fellow co-workers. I mean, these, these two women were leading in some capacity at this church. They were well-liked, well-thought-of in the Philippian church. Maybe even were a part of the original, like, core launch plant team of the Philippian church. We also know that they had some issue with each other, right? There was some problem that they had with one another. We don't know what that issue is. We don't know the particulars of that. It could have been a, just a personal disagreement. Like, man, she said this. He said, like, I'm just mad at her for whatever reason. It could be a disagreement on a doctrinal or theological issue. It could have been this, you know, just Christian obedience, Christian living kind of disagreement. We, we don't know the specifics of it. But we know that it was significant enough that Paul felt like he had to address it in this letter to the entire church. Like, clearly, the reports that he's getting was like, man, they are at each other, and it's causing some issues. It's causing division. Like, we got to figure this out. And Paul's like, man, I got this. Don't worry. I got this. So he calls them out. So whatever their disagreement was, man, it, it was a big deal. And he, he urges both of them, right? Like, Paul's not taking sides here. He's not like, hey, Euodia, man, get it together and apologize. And he's calling both of them, like, y'all get your stuff together, get your act together, and, and, and agree. Agree. Work this out together. So he urges both of them to agree in the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? This is where, you know, English translations can be a little difficult because that word agree, we've seen that several times going all the way back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul writes this, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. It's the same word there. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Paul uses that same word again a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says that we are to have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then he launches into the, the Christ hymn. We also saw it in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says he wants us to think like him. And then in verse 19 of chapter 3, we saw this last week, where he calls out people for having an earthly mindset, for being focused on earthly things. It's all the same word. 
It's all the same word there. So when he says, I want you to agree with one another, what he's saying is, I want you to think like one another, to, to have the same mindset as Paul, as Jesus, to be focused on the things of Christ, to find some, some common ground in the name of Jesus, to put whatever disagreement, whatever issue you have behind you and move forward. And then he, he even asks somebody, the, the true partner right there, where you say, I even ask you, the true partner, to help these women out. We, 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 we have no idea who that is. It's fun to speculate. Like, it's fun. We can go down this rabbit trail for a little bit. Like, that true partner. It could be any number of other leaders in the church, right? It could be Epaphroditus who's carrying this letter back. It could be Timothy who's right on the heels of Epaphroditus coming behind him. It could be... Um, it could be Lydia, right? The, the person who was the first convert in Philippi that we see in Acts chapter 16 could be her, right? She, I mean, she hosted the church. She planted the church basically in her house. Many people also think it's, it's Luke, which is a, a fun argument, right? Luke is Paul's companion. Uh, most people believe that when he wasn't at Paul's side, he was spending the bulk of his other time in Philippi. It could be, it could be Luke. We don't, we, don't, we don't know. But again, what we are reminded of with that comment alone is that this disagreement was significant. And it was causing division in the church. And Paul knows, man, this is not healthy. This is not good. And what happens, what happens when we have these disagreements in the church, like the church in Philippi, Paul knows that it, it distracts us from the more important things that God has for us. That's why Paul says, hey, remind them that they contended by my side for the gospel. Remember that they were, they were focused in giving full devotion to Jesus and his mission and this church. And like, we need to get back to that. Let go of whatever argument, whatever disagreement you have, and get back to the mission of God. This is why we see calls throughout the New Testament for us to have unity within the church. Because uh, Jesus knows, and the authors in the New Testament know, that when we allow petty arguments and silly disagreements to come in the church and divide us, it actually distracts us from what God wants to do. Right? He's got a mission. He wants to see people come to know him. He wants to make disciples. But when we're too focused on these little disagreements and issues that we can have with each other, we're not focused on those things. So Paul knows that, man, this disagreement is a big deal because it's distracting this church from the mission of God. Man, it can be the same throughout the centuries, right? How often do we hear of churches being split and divided or people leaving in anger? And you're like, hey, why'd you leave? I was like, well, this issue over here. And what it tends to be is an open-handed issue, right? It's never like, well, they said Jesus wasn't God, so we left the church. You know, it's usually like, well, you know, they, they started talking about Calvinism or, or uh, Arminianism or whatever it is. Or, man, they, they're a, they're a pre-trib church, and I'm, I'm a mid-trib church. I, I can't go there. Okay, good luck with that. I don't know. Like, it's usually not these closed-handed primary issues. It's usually secondary or tertiary or whatever the word for fourth and fifth is for that. It's usually these other things that don't ultimately matter, right? How many times have we heard stories of churches having a business meeting and, man, it just, all craziness breaks loose. The next thing you know, you got a church split. So what, what are we doing here? What are we doing? Like, this is, again, this is why the, the New Testament calls us to unity. And it's something that we have to fight for and pursue. Because, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This church, I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Maybe this is news for, for some of you in here. I don't know if you guys know this, but, but here in this room, the church, this church, is made up of a bunch of sinners. All of us are sinners. I, I say this in every wedding that I've performed, every premarital counseling I've ever done. I, I want the couple to look at each other and know you are marrying a sinner. 
You are about to be under the same roof in the same household as another sinner who's just as selfish and prone to all sorts of other sin as you are. And there's going to be a moment in time where y'all are, I know you're deeply in love now. You're super happy. Everything's great and wonderful. You're going to have a moment where you wake up, you look over to the next person like, God, they are so annoying. You don't have to admit that. I'm going to make you raise your hand. Your spouse is in here sitting next to you. You've all felt that way. We've all felt that way. We're like, oh, you're driving me crazy. Driving me absolutely crazy. Why are you so annoying, right? Like we all have those moments. The church is no different, y'all. What God does with the church is he takes a bunch of sinful believers who have trusted in Jesus but still very much struggling with their own sin and issues. He puts them into one community. He says, hey, here, do life together. Have deep relationships with one another. Love and depend on one another as if you are family. And guess what's going to happen, y'all? We're going to annoy each other. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to have issues with one another. We're like, oh, I got to see that person again. They are so, they're driving me crazy, right? I can't believe they said this. I can't, like, we're going to have these moments where conflict arises. That's what happens when we're in relationship with imperfect sinners such as ourselves. And what's the Bible's message? Work it out. Bear with one another, right? We see that all throughout the New Testament. Forgive and have grace towards one another. Now, thankfully, the Bible is not silent on this issue, again, because it knows that we're going to have these struggles. So Jesus even speaks to what healthy biblical conflict resolution looks like. He says this in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, I almost wish it said when your brother sins against you, because it's going to happen, right? If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Okay, so in Jesus' words here, he kind of gives us a progression, some steps towards conflict resolution when we do have issues with one another. So I just want to walk through that and just kind of remind us of what it looks like to work out issues when we have them inside the church. Step one, step one's not actually listed here by Jesus, but step one is, is going back to those words that we see throughout the New Testament, that we are to bear with one another, which is just basically the New Testament author saying put up with each other. Like, look, you're going to drive each other crazy. You're going to annoy each other. You're going to rub people the wrong way. Like, just sometimes you just got to let it go and just push through and bear with one another, put up with each other, because that's what relationships with sinners looks like. And when conflict happens, when that friction happens, we are to forgive, like actually truly forgive each other, to let things go and to extend grace to one another. Like if we just chased down and tried to resolve every little single thing that happened, we'd constantly be in conversations with each other, dealing with issues. And again, it goes, if y'all that are married, you know, there are some things you just got to let go. You just got to let go. It's not even worth bringing up right now because it's just going to cause more problems than, than you need right now. It's just best to let it go, to bear with, to forgive, give grace, and move forward, right? So most things can be taken care of with just that mindset and attitude. And then the second step that Jesus tells us here, okay, when there is an actual issue that you need to work through, like you just can't let it go. You just can't get to forgive until you have a conversation and get some things off your chest and try to work through some stuff. Well, the first step in that is to go to whoever you have that issue with, whoever sinned against you in whatever way, and talk with you and that person alone. To go one-on-one and have a conversation. 
and to approach that with, with gentleness and kindness, with an aim towards forgiveness and reconciliation, not revenge, right? This is not, when you try to work out conflict, this is not a, hey, you sit down and let me tell you all the ways that I don't like you right now. That's not helpful. That's not going to win you anything, right? That's not going to go well. So when we do have that conversation, we, we go with an intent to, like, let's, let's work towards a resolution here, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're family. Let's work through this. And, and the key is you, you go to that person one-on-one, right? You don't gossip about them. You don't, you don't bring up them in your small group as a prayer request, like, hey, we need to pray for so-and-so because here's all the reasons why they're such an evil sinner. And th- don't do that. That's not helpful. Go and talk with them one-on-one. And Jesus says, look, if they, if they repent, you've, you've gained your brother or sister back, right? Like, all, all is good, right? We can move forward. If they don't listen, that's when you go to the next step, right? Step three is if, if there's no repentance, you bring in help. You bring in a couple more people, maybe some more trusted friends, maybe your small group leader, maybe another leader in the church to kind of help facilitate and mediate. And Jesus says, hey, if they don't even listen to that, well, then you get the rest of the church involved, right? Like that's when the elders step in and it becomes one of those like, uh, you know, biblical issues and church discipline issues and, and you confront them in the name of the church and all that kind of stuff. Like that's when it becomes like, that's a big deal, right? Like it, it doesn't, that we shouldn't jump to that, right? Like again, there's a progression here. Like that's serious matters being dealt with there. But again, if somebody is going to continue in their unrepentance and continue in their sin and refuse to repent, then yeah, sometimes the church has to get involved. And then if there's still no repentance, then we get to the fifth and final step where where Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. What that means is treat them as an outsider or an unbeliever. And like, that's some serious language, right? That's the, again, we're not, you don't jump to that. You don't get to that after one or two conversations. Like that's a serious deal because what that's saying is due to this person's sin and lack of repentance, you seriously have to question whether they are even a Christian, whether they're even saved because of their their desire to hold on to their sin that tightly despite other Christians constantly encouraging them and calling them to repentance, so again, that, that's a serious matter. That, that's the fifth and final moment of conflict resolution here. But again, I, I would say that, that if we're doing what we're supposed to do, if we're walking with Jesus the way that we're supposed to, if we're preserving and fighting for unity within the church as we're called to, almost every single issue that we could have with one another should be dealt with by steps one or two. It should just be something that we bear with, we let go, we forgive and give grace, or we can deal with in just one conversation, one-on-one between other believers. So that's the goal, that's the hope. And, and I know that that doesn't sound fun. That's not, a, I don't know about you guys, but it's like nobody signs up to have conflict resolution conversations. Like I was like, ooh, ooh I wanna do that. That's fun, right? No, you're, if you're, you think like we need to have a conversation if that's you, okay? Like got some issues we need to talk about. Like nobody enjoys that. But this is what we're called to. And the gospel is what allows us to work towards forgiveness and reconciliation, right? The beauty of the gospel reminds us that Jesus died for sinners like you and I, right? His enemies, people that that were actively living against him. Jesus gave his life for them and forgives us fully. And resting in that, knowing that Jesus forgives us, allows us to forgive one another. If you were to continue reading in Matthew 18, just a couple verses later, Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness, about how much God forgives us and how we are called to forgive one another to that same level and degree. Not by accident, these things are right next to each other in Scripture. The gospel enables us to forgive and enables us to bear with one another and to have unity. Again, if Jesus forgives us, if Jesus can forgive us over and over and over again, we can forgive one another. 
All right, so we are to fight for unity in the church. Number two, the second thing Paul brings up is this. We are to rejoice always. Rejoice always. Look at verse four again. I love this verse. Such a beautiful encapsulation of what Philippians is all about. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, rejoice. So the second thing that Paul gives us here about what it looks like to have life with Jesus is our lives as believers are to be marked with joy. And we've seen this over and over again throughout Philippians. This is one of the key and big themes of Philippians. Paul is constantly reminding the Philippians of his joy in Jesus, calling them to have the same joy in Jesus. And we are called today to have that same joy in Jesus. And Paul writes it here in a specific way. When he says rejoice, it's written as a command. Paul is commanding us to rejoice in the Lord. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, hey, if all things are going well, if everything's right, rejoice. No, this is a command to always be rejoicing. And Paul says it here twice, right? When, when the, the authors of the scripture repeat themselves, like, it's a big deal. They're not doing that by accident. Again, they're writing under the inspiration of God himself. God, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring these words. So when we see repetition in scripture, it's a big deal. This is a big deal to Paul. It should be a big deal to us. We are to rejoice always. Not sometimes. Not if it's beautiful and sunny outside, we rejoice. No, we rejoice always. Meaning no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on, we are always to rejoice. I love how uh, 1900s uh, German theologian Karl Barth puts it when he talks about rejoicing and how we are to rejoice always as believers. It's almost like this defiant attitude of, of nevertheless I will rejoice, right? No matter what's going on, no matter the difficulties, the hardships, uh, just the struggles of life that I'm walking through, nevertheless I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Look, we've been, we've been touching on this topic throughout our time in Philippians, but let's just, let's just camp out here for a few minutes because this is such an important concept for us. And again, Paul repeats this command twice, so it should be important to us. When we talk about biblical joy, having joy in the Lord, like what do, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say that? Because again, that can be just one of those words that we throw out in Scripture and we don't ever like really talk about what that actually means. Well, we've got to do some work here because uh, typically we, we think in terms of, you know, emotional, like, happiness, right? When we talk about being happy uh, versus joyful, right? J- being joyful and having joy in the Lord is different than happiness or really the way our culture defines happiness. Happiness is, is ultimately, it's a, it's a temporary response. It's a temporary emotion to temporary pleasures, Right? So, you know, again, like, it's a beautiful day outside. We can walk out, feel the sun. I think it's even supposed to warm up a little bit, like giving us a little taste of spring. Don't believe it. George is a liar. It'll be in the 30s in two weeks again. I, you know, don't trust it, all right? Don't, it's a liar. But it's a beautiful day right now. We can walk outside, see it, feel the sun, the warmth. Ah, oh, this is great. Or maybe you sit down for a nice meal tonight. It's good. It tastes great. Nice flavor. Like, oh, man, this is, this is good. Like, I'm happy. Those of you with kids, maybe they're, they're nice and calm. They're not throwing food at each other during dinner. Like, oh, this is... We're having a nice time, nice conversation. Like, I, I feel happy. And then the next day, it's gloomy out, it's raining, and maybe the food isn't as good because you're having leftovers, and like, that's boring, fresh meal. Like, what's up with that? Like, we're eating something, the same thing again. I don't want that, I don't want to do that. And now the kids are fighting, they're yelling at each other, screaming, they're rolling on the floor, whatever it is that they're doing. Like, uh, now, now I'm unhappy, right? Happiness is a temporary response to temporary pleasures. That's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is also not this idea of, well, just turn your frown upside down. 
I know life's terrible. I know life's hard, but hey, the Bible calls us to joy, so you better, you better be happy, right? Don't worry, be happy is essentially what we're saying there. Just, just, just ignore, don't think about the pain, don't think about the struggle, just ignore all of that and have joy. And if you're walking through a hard season, you'd be, if I told you, you'd be like, thanks, appreciate the help, pastor. That's really, that, thanks, that's good, right? Like that's not what biblical joy is either. It's not just putting our head in the sand and pretending like all the struggles and hardships that we may be walking through just don't, ex- don't exist for some reason. Like that's not biblical joy. There's more to it than that. So hopefully this is a helpful definition. If not, that's okay. Just, you know, it won't hurt my feelings if you don't like it, but actually it probably will, but uh, I'll get over it. So I'll bear with you, all right? I'll forgive and give grace. But uh, here's hopefully what a helpful definition is for biblical joy. Biblical joy is a lasting emotion produced by the Holy Spirit and based on the work and promises of Jesus. I'll say that again for us. Biblical joy is a lasting emotion produced by the Holy Spirit and based on the work and promises of of Jesus. So when we talk about joy, yes, it is an emotion. Emotions are not all sinful, right? Emotions did not come as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. Emotions were given to us by God as part of being made in his image. Now, because of sin, our emotions can lead us very much astray. So, but, but when we talk about joy, it, it is a feeling. It is this emotion, but it's supposed to be this, this deep, lasting emotion that, that, that kind of supersedes all that's going on. And it's something that, that should really filter into every aspect of our lives. If we have joy in the Lord, it should affect the way that I live my life. It should affect the way that I see the world. It should affect the way that I view my circumstances as difficult as they may be right now. It should permeate every aspect of our lives. Joy is also a product of the Holy Spirit, right? It's even listed in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit are uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Faithfulness, maybe I missed. I don't know if you know. Don't quote me on that. But it's, it's, it is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's something that is produced by the Spirit. This, this biblical joy, this deep emotion that should permeate everything and, and go over all of our circumstances, that's not natural to us. Right? Some people out there, just, you know, they're, they're very happy-go-lucky, optimistic people. But, but again, that, that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is, is, is deeper than that. So that's not something that just comes naturally that we can just produce on our own or just manufacture on our own. No, that is something that is produced and cultivated by the Holy Spirit. It's grown by us yielding more and more to the Spirit in our daily lives. So it's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's also based on Jesus It's based on his word, it's based on his work, it's based on his promises to us. I heard another pastor put it this way, said that that joy is our supernatural response to the work of Jesus. It's our supernatural response to the gospel. That's what joy is. And that's why Paul calls us to, to have joy in Christ, not in our circumstances, not in whatever life is like, not even in the church, in the work and the mission of the church. No, he says, have joy in Christ. It's based on Jesus. Joy is not based on our circumstances. It's based on, on Jesus' work and his promises to us. That's what joy is based on. Joy is based on an objective reality that is anchored in Jesus Christ. It's anchored in him. That is joy. And that's, that's why Paul can say we are to rejoice always, at all times, no matter what's going on. We as believers can have this disposition of joy because our joy is not based on our changing circumstances. It is based 
on an unchanging Savior. That's what our joy is. It's based on Jesus. I love how, how First Peter puts it. I mean, you could also go all the way back to verse 3, but I won't, I won't do that for us. But First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So our, our joy is based on Jesus and his work within us, within our hearts, within our church, within this world. That's what we base our joy in. It's anchored in him. It's anchored in him. So how, how can we, what are some steps that we can take to, to grow and, and cultivate biblical joy in our hearts and lives? I think the most important thing we can do is remind ourselves of truth. Remind ourselves of who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is doing. Remind ourselves of the truths of God. So how, how do we cultivate biblical joy in our lives? One, we, we remind ourselves of God's sovereignty. Remind yourself of God's sovereignty. That he is right now overseeing and in control of everything we have going on in our lives. He's in control of it all. He's got it all in the palm of his hands and he can handle everything that we have, right? Even the difficult stuff. Like Jesus isn't surprised by those things. Like he's in control of it all. He's overseeing it all. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives, everything happening in our lives and in the world right now as we talk. And he is executing and working his perfect plan and purposes through everything that happens, through every circumstance, the good and the bad. No matter what we're walking through, we can trust that Jesus is over it all, is in full control of it all, has power over it all. That should, that should give us some sort of ease and comfort no matter what we're walking through. We may not know why. We may not know what's happening and why we have to do this, but we can trust that God does. And that he's working his plan and purpose at all times. So we remind ourselves of God's sovereignty too. We remind ourselves of God's goodness. Not only is God sovereign and empowering, controlling everything that happens, he's a good God. He's a good God. His ways are always good, right? God is always good. His plan is always good. His purposes are always good. His ways are always good. Meaning, meaning church, that whatever we're walking through, we can trust not only is God working through that and guiding us through that, but that it's ultimately for his good and our good. His plan is always what's best for us. Now, look, it doesn't feel that way. We're in the midst of struggle and hardship. Like, we can feel like, man, we are deep in the valley. But what Scripture reminds us of is even in those moments of darkness and difficulty and pain and suffering, that our God is at work and it is ultimately for our good. It's ultimately what's best for us. God is always good. And third, we need to remind ourselves of God's love. That God always loves us more than we could ever comprehend, understand, or put into words. Our God loves us, and there's nothing that we could ever do that could take that love away from us. So again, what this reminds us of is no matter what hardship and difficulty I'm walking through, it's not God saying, well, Travis, you really messed up, and here's a bunch of difficult things in life to remind you of how displeased I am with you, right? Like, here's wrath, have fun with that, deal with it, because I don't really love you right now anymore. 
You got to figure that out. Like that, that, that's not. And so we know like when we walk through stuff that we still have the love of God with us, that he still loves us. And look, we, we have that truth shown us most clearly in the gospel, right? In the gospel, we touched on this earlier, but Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, like not good, decent, wholesome people. It's like, yeah, you know what? They're a little weird. They drive me a little crazy. They struggle with some things, but you know what? They're, they're good people. I'd, I'd gladly give my life for them. No, while we were enemies of Jesus, he gave his life for us to save us. Like that truth should bring joy in our lives. When we remember the gospel, it should remind us of how much God loves us and that should bring joy to our lives, Christian. No matter what we have going on in our lives, that is true. The truth is that once we were sinners and now we're saved. Once we were lost and now we're found. Once we were blind and now we see. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's something we need to constantly remind ourselves of to help cultivate this joy in our lives. Again, because it's based on Jesus, right? So no matter how much our circumstances change, these truths of Jesus, what he has done in our lives and what he promises to continue to do in our lives don't change. And that's what we base our joy on. That's what we use to cultivate this joy in our lives. We remember the truths of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he is doing in our lives. So we have to, we have to take that truth and we have to bring our circumstances and our feelings and whatever we have going on in our lives, we have to bring it under that truth of Jesus and the gospel. That yes, it may be difficult. Yes, I may feel like everything's falling apart right now. We're just, everybody's just attacking me right now. But what, what's true, again, the objective reality of life is that God is sovereign. God is good, and God loves me. All right, number three, number three here. Uh, so we see that, that Jesus here calls us to unity, calls us to rejoice in him, and then number, number three here, the last truth that we see is that we are to be gracious towards all. We're to be gracious towards all. Look at verse five, look at verse five. Paul writes, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. That word graciousness means this. It means not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom to be yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. Other ways that you could see it translated in your different versions could be gentle, forbearing, reasonable, and these are all attitudes that we typically see in the culture around us, right? Like, this is very prevalent among us, right? Especially when we go online and see things like social media and other places like that. It's very tolerable and, and reasonable, right? That's a, that's a great way to describe our culture right now. Very reasonable. No, not at all, right? That's the exact opposite of what we typically experience in the world and in our lives right now, especially in our culture, right? We see the exact opposite of that. And this is why Paul calls us to graciousness, this is why we see this call throughout Scripture to have this attitude because it, it sets us apart as believers in Christ. It sets us apart from the rude and selfish and cold and disagreeable attitudes that we so often find around us. We're to live 
differently. We're, we're to have a different outlook, a different mindset. That's what life with Jesus looks like. It means that we are gracious towards all. Paul says, again, something similar. If we go back, and he's, he's putting conclusions for us based on stuff that he's already said. So Philippians 2, go back to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. That, that's what it means to be gracious. That's the attitude of graciousness that Paul's talking about here. Right? Our definition said that we don't always insist on our own way. Right? So it means being gracious means that we're not selfish. We're not selfish. We don't make everything all about us. It's not all about what I want, my preferences, my way or the highway, right? Like that's not the attitude that Paul calls us to here. That, that's not being gracious. We don't insist on our own ways. We, we put others first. We put their needs first, their preferences ahead of our own. It also means that, that we're patient with one another's shortcomings. Again, we've been talking about this. Like sin is going to be prevalent in our lives and in our relationships, it's not difficult to see how often we fall short of things, right? You want a list of where I fall short? Just go ask my wife. She'll give it to you. Like, we all have this stuff. We're, nobody's immune to this. But what do we do in relationships? What does it mean to be gracious towards one another when we do fail and stumble and make mistakes and have issues or forget things or whatever it is? Like, we're, we're patient with each other. We're patient with each other. We, we bear with one another. We give grace. We have understanding towards other people. It also means that we're gentle, it means that we're gentle. It's the way that we respond to people. Gentle, especially like when we're stressed or when things don't go our way. Is that, is that how we would be described? Is man, they're really gentle in the face of difficulty. Or would it be, you know, a little bit of a different description, right? Are we, are we a little harsh? Are we angry? Are we rude at times? We are to be gracious. We're to be gracious with one another. Paul says that we are to let our graciousness be known. That's a command there, right? That's not a suggestion. That's not a, hey, if it goes well, if, if things work out, if people are nice to you, then you respond with graciousness. No, this is a, a let your graciousness be known to everyone at all times, right? That's what he's talking about here, to all people. That means we were to be gracious towards one another in the church. We're to be gracious with our neighbor who maybe drives us a little crazy. We're to be gracious with our coworkers. We're to be gracious with our boss, even though that person may treat you the exact opposite way. Or to be gracious. Or to be gracious and kind and gentle to that fast food worker taking your order in the drive-thru. Or to be gracious towards that customer service agent that you have to call this week. Y'all pray for me. I got to call Xfinity this week and cancel our internet. And I just know, like, I got to prepare myself for, like, three other people I got to talk to that are all going to try to convince me to not cancel, right? And, and and they're just trying to do their job, right? Like, I don't they're, just, they're just trying to get through the day, right? And maybe, you know, maybe I can be gracious towards them. Hey, Lord, help me be gracious and kind and gentle and reasonable because they're probably not going to experience that for most people during the day. We're to be gracious towards everyone. And look, you might be thinking like, no, come on, man, like that. No, we can't really do that. Like if I, if I live that way, if I do that, like does, it, does following Jesus mean that I just have to, I never get my way, I never get my preferences. It's always about everybody else and never about me. Like I have to forfeit all of my rights and preferences all the time. Like, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, kind of, yeah, a little bit. Most of the time, probably yes, yes. Now look, I get it. Like we do have to balance with, there's wisdom. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do for somebody is to tell them no and to set healthy biblical boundaries, right? Like I understand that. I'm not calling you just to be the doormat for Jesus. But, but 
yes, the, the Bible does call us to this attitude. And here's the thing. There's not a limit on that. There's no qualifications here anywhere in Scripture that we can find where it's like, hey, be gracious, unless somebody's just like really, really mean. And then, you know, it d- doesn't matter. Like, you know, all, all limits are off. Or, you know, be gracious until the 10th person is mean to you or selfish. And then, you know, then it's like, hey, no, 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 I'm done with you. Like, there's no limits being given here on how much or how often we are to extend graciousness. I think we can assume safely that it means all times to every single person that we come in contact with. We're to be gracious. And again, this is where the gospel helps us and gives us motivation to actually walk in obedience. Because this is not natural, right? This is not how we would typically respond, at least not in every situation, right? And we all have these moments where people are rude and unkind and treat us unfairly, that people are just extremely selfish in this world and we have to figure out how to interact with them, right? This is not necessarily natural to us, but this is, again, this is where we remind ourselves of the gospel and what Jesus does for us. Jesus gives us grace upon grace upon grace, never-ending grace and mercy, Again, he gave his life for people who would constantly and regularly disobey him and need second chance after second chance after second chance after second chance. And is there ever a point, church, where Jesus goes, all right, Travis, you've had enough second chances. No more. No, that's not the way grace works. There is never an ending to the grace of Jesus Christ. He continually gives it. So when we are gracious towards others, especially those that maybe don't deserve it or are acting and treating us the exact opposite way. When we respond with graciousness towards those who are always rude, always selfish, we're being like Jesus in those moments. We're being like Jesus in those moments. So will we not get our way all the time? Yeah, yeah, we're not going to get our way all the time. Yeah, that's true. Will we be taken advantage of sometimes? Yes, Sometimes we will. Sometimes people will take advantage of our kindness and our generosity and our unselfish attitude towards them. But look, here, here's where I land. Maybe, you know, you can be different. You can disagree with me on this. That, that's fine. But here's where I land. If I'm going to err, I'd rather err on the side of being too gracious, of being too kind, too gentle, too many second chances. I'd rather err on the side of being gracious just like Jesus is gracious us, right? So we are to be gracious towards everyone. And and the last thing we'll we'll end here, the last thing that Paul tells us here is the Lord is near. And again, this seems like just like, okay, what, huh? You're gracious, and then the Lord's near. Like, what am I supposed to do with that, Paul? Like, what, what, they're just bouncing around here. But it's a beautiful reminder that Jesus is always right here with us that Jesus is always close, that he's always at work within us, that we can always trust him. Because Jesus is near, we can work through conflict in a healthy, godly way. Because Jesus is near and always with us, no matter what we have going on in our lives, we can always rejoice. Because Jesus is near, is right there with us, we can be gracious towards everyone, even and especially to those who may not deserve it. His nearness, his closeness to us provides us the necessary encouragement to live for him. He is with us always, church. That's a beautiful reminder. No matter where we go, no matter what we walk through, no matter what's going on, we have Jesus, our Savior, the one who has all power and authority over everything that is happening. He is right there with us every step of the way. 
leading, guiding, directing us, dragging us, carrying us sometimes through that. He's right there with us, church. He's always close, and he wants us to always be close with him. And it's another beautiful reminder of what Paul's been talking about, that one day our Savior is going to come back, and he's going to be with us fully in his presence. We're going to be with him fully for all of eternity in complete perfection. That's our promise. And we have eternity in complete perfection to look forward to, church. Let that be an encouragement to be a little bit more gracious, a little bit more forgiving towards others, a little bit more joyful this week. Let me pray for us, and we're going to step into this time of worship and communion that we do every single week. So this is a time for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. This is a time for us to, to really reflect on and celebrate the very things that we've been talking about today, the gospel of Jesus, that he loves us so much he gave his life on the cross for us. He defeated sin and Satan and death and rose again on the third day so that we could have forgiveness and salvation and freedom and reconciliation, and peace, and joy, and satisfaction in our lives, church. So believer in the room, I encourage you, like we do every single week, take, take your time, take some moments, <clears throat> prepare your heart, spend some time in prayer and worship to Jesus, and as you're ready, you go to either side of the room. You take the elements, you take the cup and the bread, you eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus and his salvation. This time isn't for those of us who haven't put our faith in Jesus, but if that's you here today, the call of salvation goes out to you as well. That Jesus died for you. Yes, you. That you are one of those sinners just like the rest of us here. That Jesus loves so much that he died on the cross for you so that he could save you, rescue you, redeem you, set you free from all sin in your life. And the only thing he asks in return of us is to respond in faith to him. He promises to give us full forgiveness, full freedom, full salvation, eternal life with him. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I put my faith in you. I trust in you for my salvation. I don't trust in me. I don't trust in my good works. I don't trust in anything else. I trust in you. If you're here and you want to do that today, I'll be hanging out in the back. We've got other folks here that would love to talk with you about that. Let me pray for us, church. Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word these glorious reminders, Jesus, of, of yes, sometimes we're going we're gonna to have some conflict. We're going to have some issues. There's going to be sin that's present. And, and Jesus, in those moments, would you leave us to follow your word? Would you lead us towards forbearance? Would you lead us towards grace and forgiveness of one another? Would you lead us to work through conflict in a healthy way so that we preserve unity within the church? Lord, would you lead us and grow and cultivate within us joy? Lord, would we be people that, that can rejoice and are rejoicing always, no matter what is going on, because our joy is based in you and who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. Would you, would you make us into joyful people? And Lord, would you help us be gracious? Would you help us not insist on our own way? Would you help us uh, be deferential, be, be kind and courteous and, and gentle towards those in our lives, Lord? Would we respond to rudeness and anger and hate, not with more rudeness, anger, and hate, but with your love and your grace, Jesus? Lord, we need your help. We need you to grow and cultivate these attitudes in our lives, Lord, so we are asking you to do that. We are trusting and depending on you to lead us and guide us in these moments, Lord. We ask all this in your powerful name. Amen. Amen.